Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, if this is your first time or one of your first times, we appreciate you stepping out. I know sometimes it's hard to step into a new place. If you're joining us online, I appreciate you doing that too. So back in, I don't think it was the second time uh, the U.S. went to Iraq, we, we ran what we called a shock and awe campaign. And it's a military strategy where you overwhelm with force and you overwhelm with power to convince an opponent or an enemy to surrender. Why would countries do that? And a variety of reasons. Maybe they perceive evil. Maybe they want to take a country because they just want to expand their kingdom. They've got resources. They've got a port city. Shock and awe. Bring people to a point of surrender. You know, 2,000 years ago when he went into public ministry, Jesus ran his own shock and awe campaign, but it had nothing to do with bombs. It had nothing to do with explosions. It had nothing to do with planes. It had, nothing to, it had everything to do with miracles. Kind of stuff that would, if you saw it, would make your jaw drop. Like, is this really happening? Can this guy really pull it off? And he ran his own shock and awe campaign to bring us to a point of surrender also. But he wasn't looking to expand our, his kingdom uh, he already owns the world. He didn't need any resources. He didn't need a port we had. He didn't need any... No, no, no. He, he, he was bringing us, hopefully, to a point of surrender for our own good. For our gain. And I want us to think about that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to John 6, verse 1 to 21, we're going to go through that passage and say, why did Jesus work miracles? Why did Jesus, if you will, run his own, run his own shock and awe campaign? Through miracles. Why did Jesus work miracles? Haven't been with us? We've been in the Gospel of John, and we have stated that John walked with Jesus for three years in public ministry, and he saw stuff that shocked him and awed him. He thought, I got to write it. I got to tell you about this. Because John came to the conclusion after three years that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, resurrected from the dead. John saw him certified dead and saw him alive on that Sunday afterwards. He's saying, I'm writing to you that you may come to the same conclusion that you might believe in him as the son of God and in that you might have life eternal. Over the last couple weeks, we've seen Jesus uh, heal a man who was paralytic for 38 years. And that generated a whole lot of discussion because he did it on the Sabbath and who are you to do it on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, I'm working on the Sabbath like my father is. And he, he clearly articulated he's the son of God, making himself equal with God. And he, he, he gave all these other witnesses, the Father and his works, and John the Baptist is the word of Moses and the word of Scripture. And so, so we're sometime after that. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, after these things. So it's giving us sequence. It's not giving us how much time, but time has elapsed. Verse 1 says, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. And what we're going to see is this has been a big deal. Uh, there'd been a healing and there'd been a big discussion and it's Jesus wants to pull away with his disciples to get let's let's process this where are you guys in this what are you thinking uh, but there's a problem in him getting away a crowd followed verse 2 a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick they thought man talk about shock and awe this guy is guys 38 years been a paralytic and 
bang, he speaks the word, and he's back up. It's kind of like, you know, my, my mother-in-law's got uh, fibromyalgia. I've got a, a loved one who's got Parkinson's. I've got someone who's got MS. And maybe if I can get them in front of Jesus, well, maybe they'll, they'll be healed. It, it's very short-term. And, and, and make no doubt, a healing from an illness is something to celebrate, but every person that was healed would eventually die. They would get sick again and die. No, nobody escaped that. So if, if the view is only short-term and immediate healing, well, then you've missed the point because Jesus wants to point to a deeper reality with these miracles. Uh, verse 3 says, Then Jesus went up on the mountain. Maybe... Uh, hillside would be better, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, we have four gospel accounts, and sometimes the the gospel writers would write of the same experience, maybe from a little different perspective, and Mark does that. So I'm going to refer to Mark, because he's writing of this same experience. Here's what he says in Mark 6.32. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. So so that's the idea. We've had a big day. We've had... uh, People healed, and, and we want to get away, and we want to process that. And, and so they're getting away. Um, they've got a crowd following them. But verse 4 gives us a little bit of context more of what's going on. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Passover's the biggest Jewish celebration, was the biggest Jewish celebration. It, it went back to when Israel had spent 400 years in slavery, um, and God called a guy named Moses and said, hey, I want to take my people out. And Moses said, yeah, I don't know if I'm able to pull that off. And God said, I'm going to work through you. And he, and he worked a series of 10 plagues to convince Pharaoh, who didn't want to let them go because Israel was very, very cheap labor, helped his gross national product quite a bit. And the 10th one was, Pharaoh, you're not getting this. The firstborn in every one of your houses is going to die, but I'm going to pass over the people of Israel. So they're celebrating the Passover. Now, that's a kind of a loaded holiday because they were delivered from an occupying power. And in Jesus' day, Israel was occupied by Rome. And so there were implications or hopes, at least among some of the people, that just as God delivered them from an oppressive power a thousand years ago, he would do it again. But that wasn't Jesus' gig. That wasn't what Jesus was about. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But people had this expectation. That minus says, therefore, Jesus, remember, he's trying to gather his disciples, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd, so this time alone is not going to happen, was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? So again, let me, let me refer to Mark 6, 33 to 36 to fill in the background here. Uh, the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and began to teach many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and is already quite late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So you got what would happen. We want to get away, want to process what's gone on. But a whole bunch of people follow him, and they're out in in a a, a desolate place, and Jesus has been teaching a while, and all of a sudden we realize there's no food. And people, there's no DoorDash. There's no Uber Eats. There's no Hy-Vee nearby. And so, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? 
So when I go back to John 6, verse 5, Jesus turns to Philip and says, hey, man, where are we, where are we going to get food? That's, a, that's Philip. Now, is, is, Jesus, is Jesus asking Philip because he's, he's kind of perplexed? Man, time got to whoo. You know, how, you know how those preachers can go, don't you? They get talking and they lose track of time. You know how that goes. Did Jesus have one of those moments and, and whoo, Philip, whoo, what are we going to do here? Is that why he asked him the question? No, it's not why he asked him the question. Here's why he asked him the question, verse 6. This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. This is simply a test of Philip. Philip, we got a, we got a situation on our hands here, bro. We got a crowd that is going to be, we, we're going to find out it's up to 20,000. And, and we're way out in the boonies. And, and we got food. Where, where do we, Philip, what do we do? And, and how is Philip going to answer this? Is he going to think on an earthly level? Or is he going to begin to process who this Jesus is? Maybe, maybe Jesus has got a solution here. Here's how Philip's answers in verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Uh, day's wage was a, a denarii, so 200 days wages. We're looking about eight months wages. And Philip says, Jesus, man, this situation is out of hand, out of hand. Even if we had eight months wages, we couldn't feed these people. How'd Philip do in the test? Failed miserably. Why? Because he only thought on an earthly plane. He only thought on an earthly plane. And Jesus, this is out of control. I don't know what we're going to do. But it begs a question, doesn't it? What do you and I do in the impossible? You know, the, the, the medical treatment, the numbers say, uh, the, this, the numbers should be going this way and they're going that way, but it looks bad. I don't, I don't have an experience to get a job. I, what do we do in, in the impossible? Do we think on an earthly level? That's it. So Philip fails. Now, if you get nothing out of this sermon, I want you to pay attention to verse 8. Can you do that for me? Because what we're going to find out is then when you want something done right spiritually, you contact a guy named Andrew. Andrew does it right here, okay? Got an Andrew back in the soundboard. Do I have any other Andrews back here? Okay, there we go. All right, so you find an Andrew because Andrew gets it right. One of his disciples, which one? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Here's what Andrew gets right. We don't have much. Five barley loaves and two fish. I mean, these, I mean we're, we're talking little things. That, that may not feed a person. Or, and the fish are the, we're, we're small. And we got 20 grand or so here. What does Andrew get right? He takes his meager resources and brings them to Jesus. Jesus, man, we got a situation, and, and, and this is what we got. What, what, what can you do? Andrew, maybe you're starting to piece some things together. But again, I want to ask, what do we do in those impossible situations? So, when I was looking for my first job as a senior pastor, we were just a little ways into the process, and I'm realizing these churches get 
all kinds of applicants for these positions, and I've got no experience as a senior or preaching pastor. So I say, Hope, come here, we need to talk. I said, this search, we just need to call it, call it off. Call it off, because no one's going to hire me because I have no experience. I failed like Philip did. What I needed to do was bring my lack of experience to Jesus and say, man, I'm, I'm beat, I'm whooped, I got no shot here. What are you going to do when you get against the impossible? Maybe you're a person, you want to be married, and you're single, and you can't remember the last time you've had a date. Man, it's just give up or compromise. No, bring that to Jesus. What might Jesus want to do? And I'm not saying he's going to magically produce a spouse, but he may want to give you a supernatural contentment. He may want to work for a period of time in your life to get you ready to be married. But what do we do when we're up against the impossible? Andrew gets it right. We bring meager whatever we got. Jesus, what we got. I don't think it's much, but you do your thing. So that's what Jesus does. Verse 10. Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in the number about 5,000. So we're talking about 5,000 men. That's why scholars think there may have been up to 20,000 in the crowd. Okay, so, so you've sat them down, Jesus. Now what? Now what? Then Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed those to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. We had five and two. What what happens when you start to distribute? Well, here's what happens on the distribution. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Five loaves, two fish. We got 20,000 people, give or take. And we got leftovers. It was very Jewish not to waste food. And I don't think it's any mistake that there were 12 baskets, 12 representing the number of tribes of Israel that God provides for his people, 12 also representing the number of disciples. And I wonder, I'm, I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, did each disciple walk away with the bread? Full of left, a basket full of leftovers. Think, what in the world did I just see? I don't know. That's speculation on my part. But I do know we started by asking this question: Why did Jesus work miracles? Here's why. Jesus worked miracles to show He has unlimited power to provide for His people. Jesus worked miracles to show he has unlimited power to provide for his people. Jesus' miracles go beyond the here and now. And and that's the problem with many of the people. They were looking for the here and now. Yeah, he gave them a meal, but you know what? They'd need another meal, and they'd need another one. Can you get beyond this specific instance to Jesus meets your deepest needs? Jesus meets your need for food, shelter. Uh, The the healing, the the trouble is with that paralytic, he got healed and he's walking again, but but someday he died. What then? 
Jesus said, I hope these miracles point to a deeper reality that I am the one the whole Old Testament has pointed to, the Son of God come to die for the sin of the world and to forgive our, to make us right with God and yes, to reconnect us that we can live the way God designed us to live. What's the crowd's response? Verse 14, here's what it is. It says, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said to him, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. The prophet has a specific prophecy, and it goes back to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. Moses is writing. They've come out of Egypt, and they're waiting to go into the promised land, and, and Moses is not going to go in because he has failed to trust God, uh, and he's given the people an assurance. Here's what he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, let me not see this great fire anymore, I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And Israel looked for the ultimate fulfillment of this prophet who would be Moses and greater. And the people realized he's coming, Jesus. God's words have been put in his mouth, and as mightily as God moved through Moses, as he works infinitely more through Jesus. Jesus is the one of whom the whole Old Testament looks forward to. How do the people respond? This is a big deal. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. They want a king to overthrow Rome. I think that's why John lists 5,000 men. They've got a significant army right here. And Jesus, I mean, if you do some of your Jesus stuff, maybe we could get these bloody Romans out of here. And Jesus realized, I'm not interested in fulfilling your desire for me. We all have things we want Jesus to do for us. Jesus said, I want you to come trusting me. Blank check. I'm trusting you. And I'm not demanding a certain outcome, Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm trusting you and your goodness. With that, Jesus sends his disciples on his way. We pick that up in verse 16. It says, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started across the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Remember, they're on their way. Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. It says, then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And they were frightened. And he said, it is I. Do not be afraid. God's number one command to his people. Don't be afraid. We'll talk about it that again Christmas Eve. How much do we live in fear of whatever? God says to people, don't be afraid. I'm sovereign and I'm in charge. And I'm good. And we see that at Christmas. So they were willing to receive into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And from the outset, we've kind of portrayed John as a prosecuting attorney uh, seeking to convict Jesus of being guilty of being the Son of God. And we said through the, the course of the Gospel of John, John's going to give us seven signs that are, are kind of a shock and awe, kind of demand a response from us. We saw the first one was when he turned water into wine. 
Then we saw him heal a nobleman's son. A couple of weeks ago, we saw him heal a guy who had been a paralytic for 38 years. That's three. This morning, we see the fourth and the fifth. 20,000 people, give or take, five loaves and two fish, and he feeds them so that there's leftovers. That's sign number four. Sign number five is walking on the water. You're the jury. John's trying to bring you to a decision. What are you going to decide? Is he guilty? Or not? If you decide he's the Son of God, then will you take him at his word? Full submission. That's what he's looking for. The shock and awe campaign, that's what he's looking for. Full submission. Because that full submission, you can have life in full. Well, if you've never made that decision, I want to encourage you to think about making it today or making it this Christmas season. What decision are you talking about, Andy? To trust Christ fully for the forgiveness of my sin, that it could restore my heart. Why? Because we've all lived in rebellion to God. We've all pushed back. We've all done our own thing. That's why Jesus came to die for the forgiveness of sin. Some of you are in here saying, well, Andy, man, I did that years ago. I'm glad. We're in that boat together. My question is, what do you need to bring to Jesus? What's the impossible? What's the relationship that you just can't heal, that just can't get right? What's the health issue that no matter what kind of treatment you do, whatever, it just doesn't seem to get her? What's the financial situation that no matter how you budget, it just doesn't? It's impossible. Jesus majors in the impossible. But we want to hang on. Jesus said, will you take a page from Andrew's book and take your meager resources, your meager experience, your meager whatever, and bring it to me and see what I might do. Spent the 93-94 school year in campus ministry in Siberia. It was Christmas Eve, actually. I was out for a jog, and there was a guy walking toward me with a big dog, and all of a sudden that big dog sees me and comes after me. And it was, I mean, big dog. He jumps up. I got about three layers on, but he, he kind of bites me right here. And I'm scared, and the guy calls the dog off, and I'm yelling at him, and I'm not hurt. Kind of adrenaline rush. And I get home, and I pick up, and, and the skin's been broken. And I'm not going to be able to trace that dog. So I call the American Medical Clinic in Moscow, and they say, yeah, you probably need to get some kind of shot within 72 hours. So we go around Nova Sibiris. Nobody has rabies medicine there. We don't have rabies. We've eradicated it. Well, that's great, but if you're wrong, that doesn't sit well with me. Um, so we go down and we get a, want to get a plane back to Moscow because the train wouldn't get back there in 72 hours. They say, hey, we have a flight going tonight, but just so you know, we haven't had a flight go to Moscow in a week because we're out of fuel, and that's just how they rolled in the Soviet Union. You'd run our fuel, the, the plane just doesn't go. And I think, well, that's, that's not good either. And then one little caveat here, um, I had a, a ring in my pocket because um, my wife was in, she was my girlfriend then, and she was in Kazakhstan, so we're going to go to Moscow together, and then we're going to go to Switzerland. I was going to ask her to marry me there, and I thought, you know, if I'm frothing at the mouth, that is going to take away. That is going to take away from the moment. You might want to check with her after if I'd been frothing, if she would have accepted my proposal or not. So there's a lot of pressure. I want to get this shot so I don't get rabid. 
Um, so finally we get in. We get into Moscow. The flight's supposed to go at 11. It goes at 2 a.m. The guy says, yeah, you're pretty low risk on rabies here. We're going to do a five-shot series over a month. It'll be in the arm. And we do the first three shots in Moscow, but then they run out of medicine. And they said it's a customs, but somebody's waiting for a bribe to get it through, and we can't get it through. So the next day, we're going to spend 10 days in Switzerland, and I think, well, maybe I'll go there and see what I can do. So we land, and I walk into the first clinic, and the guy reads the, speaks English, speaks German. The instructions are in French, and he says, I don't have it today, but I can have it tomorrow. Come back at 9 a.m., and we'll give you your shot. And would you like me to order you a second kit for a second shot, just in case they run out? Yeah, that'd be good. So I get the shot. Um, Take that back. It seems by the time I get back to Moscow, they, they do have the medicine and it, it works out. But, but, but what struck me is what the Soviet system couldn't give me, well, the Swiss system could give me in abundance. And I think that's a picture of a relationship with God. What the world can't give us, because they're short on supply, God can give us in abundance. My question is, especially this Christmas season, where are we looking for life? In a good party? Somebody likes the gift we got, we like the gift we get. Where, where are we? Jesus ran a shock and awe campaign. Not for his good, for our good. That he might get our attention and we might surrender to him. Why? That we could experience life that comes when we trust him to be the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that uh, your shock and awe campaign was not to advance your own purposes. It was to advance our purposes, to give us life, to bring us to a point of surrender. Lord Jesus, we want to hold on. We want to do our own thing. But You came and worked a series of miracles to point to a deeper reality that you're the Son of God. And this Christmas season, we are grateful for you. We celebrate you. Born of a virgin, fully man, fully God, suffered and died, risen from the dead. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.